You're here today to train for the greatest adventure in the history of mankind. My, oh my, born and bred in the Briar Patch, and I'm here to stay. We're about to begin. In case of a loss of cabin pressure, just relax, okay? Hey, thanks for being such a great test crew. Come back and ride anytime. Bye now. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 27 for the week of August 12th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again. To our new listeners, welcome to the show. If this is your first time listening, let me just tell you briefly a little bit about the show. This is a completely family-friendly podcast that focuses on Walt Disney World. From our coverage of news and rumors, to trivia, history, vacation planning, reviews, interviews, contests, and a wide variety of other segments presented to you with the help of a number of special guests each week. There's something here for everybody, and each show offers something a little bit different. So I invite you to go and visit the website at wdwradio.com or iTunes and download some of our older episodes. And remember, since this show is for you, I want it to be interactive and want you to be involved as much as you would like. You can always send me suggestions, comments, questions, or even a segment idea, and who knows, maybe you can join me on the air if you like. Okay, on to this week's show. Let's start off, as always, with news and views from Walt Disney World, including, of course, the big change coming to the Disney MGM Studios. Our visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill will include some possible extra, extra magic hours and an old favorite in Epcot possibly reopening later on this year. I'm also going to introduce the first in a recurring series entitled Legends of Disney Imagineering. My first guest certainly qualifies to bear that title and introduction He is George McGinnis, who played a large part in the creation of the Mark VI monorail, Space Mountain, Horizons, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and countless other attractions and vehicles in Walt Disney World. In this exclusive one-on-one interview, Mr. McGinnis shares stories of being personally hired by Walt Disney, the triumphs and challenges in creating such attractions as the Wedway People Mover, Space Mountain, Communicore, and countless others. He reminisces about working not only with Walt Disney, but a who's who of Disney legends, including Dick Nunes, Marty Sklar, John Hench, Bob Gurr, Roger Brogley, Claude Coates, and so many more. It's truly something special that I think you're going to enjoy, and it was a personal privilege for me to do. And listen very carefully, as he also may be sharing a secret about a change that's likely coming to one of his Walt Disney World attractions. Janice Smith from the Let's Talk About Disney podcast joins me for another unique take on the hidden treasures of Walt Disney World. I'll answer more of your emails and play some of your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report. Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. The big news coming out of Walt Disney World this week is that the Disney MGM Studios will be renamed Disney's Hollywood Studios, and that's going to take effect in January of 2008. 
According to Meg Crofton, president of the Walt Disney World Resort, she said, quote, The new name reflects how the park has grown, from representing the golden age of movies to a celebration of the new entertainment that today's Hollywood has to offer. Music, television, movies, and theater. And I actually happen to agree with Ms. Crofton. I think this is a great thing. I'm happy about the name change. I think it's uh, all-encompassing of all Hollywood entertainment without any relationship to any specific uh, studios, etc. Now, this is also a perfect time to uh, for Disney to announce other changes that are coming to the park as well, including some now confirmed rumors. First, of course, we know that Toy Story Mania is going to be coming in summer 2008. Uh, Ms. Crofton talked a little bit more about what the experience was going to be in the release this week, including uh, some more details, such as once inside, you'll reach Andy's Toy Box, where the competition really heats up to see who can rack up the most points. Using spring action shooters, guests will launch darts at balloons, rings at aliens, eggs at whimsical barnyard targets, and more. Now, with the confirmed name change and all the work that is going on in and around the Toy Story Mania Mania building, uh, it does beg the question as to whether or not this area will, in fact, eventually be renamed Pixar Place, as has been rumored for some time. Uh, Other details that came out was that the Block Party Bash is coming, and that's going to be in spring 2008, replacing Disney's Stars and Motor Cars Parade. That's billed as being the wildest and, again, most interactive parade in Disney history. Again, highlighting the move towards more interactivity with guests. This parade is going to be include uh, high-flying acrobatics. There's going to be more than 20 different Disney Pixar characters filling the streets uh, from The Incredibles, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., and A Bug's Life. Additionally, Playhouse Disney Live on Stage is going to be getting the new cast from the Playhouse Disney uh, TV series in the morning. Those are going to include... Stars from the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Little Einsteins, Handy Manny, and more. You should note that Playhouse Disney Live on Stage, the current show, is going to close and be closed throughout January in 2008, and the new show will open in February. Disney's high school musical Pep Rally is also going to be upgraded uh, for the new movie and now entitled School's Out. There's going to be new songs, a whole new type of spirit to uh, celebrate the new High School Musical coming to uh, the Disney Channel this year. This is going to take place and start uh, being seen on the streets of Disney MGM Studios in fall of 2007. Speaking also of Playhouse Disney, there are going to be some more meet-and-greet characters, including Handy Manny. Handy Manny is the Hispanic character who not only introduces children to the Spanish language, but teaches them about solving problems together and being part of a community. Again, he's part of the new Playhouse Disney lineup over on the Disney Channel. Uh, You can expect to see him probably around November of this year. Staying at the studio's construction walls for the Star Wars Jedi Academy stage have gone up. The Ewok Village, which includes the Tree Village and the giant Adat Walker, have been surrounded. And it it begs the question as to what kind of changes will take place. Will the Adat remain or will he become a victim of the new Jedi stage? Um, We'll have to just wait and see on that one. But uh, the, obviously the attraction does remain open, but it is expected that the Ewok Village will start being torn down probably sometime later on this week. And speaking of being torn down, nice segue, Lou, Wonders of Life over in Epcot's Future World appears to definitely be closed for good, at least as how we all remember it, as the sign in front of the pavilion has finally been removed and the Tower of Life, which is the, uh, the 76-foot-tall DNA structure, has been dismantled as well, as we reported last week. This pavilion is going to be used during the Food and Wine Festival, but uh, it has been, for the most part, been gutted in the middle. Although, uh, you know, attractions like Body Wars remain, but they will not be open during Food and Wine. 
Again, speaking of international food and wine festivals, that also, in addition to great food, it also features free live concerts. Disney has finally announced the lineup. I'm going to put all the uh, the dates and the performers in the show notes. But it includes people like the Beach Boys, Sheena Easton, Little Richard, the Four Tops, the Village People, and Chubby Checker. These Eat to the Beat concerts are about 30 to 40 minutes in length. They're performed usually three times each night at 5.45, 7, and 8.15. Again, I'm going to put the 2007 schedule up in this week's show notes. I told you last week that Breathless 2 is finally in the water over at the Yacht and Beach Club Marina. And this week I received a special voicemail from a friend at the marina that I think that you're going to enjoy. Get a little listen to exactly what Breathless 2 sounds like. And remember, if you want to book Breathless 2 or any of the cruises from the marina, you can call 407-WDW-PLAY. Hi, Lou. This is Mike, your buddy from Bayside Marina. And I'm standing here next to Breathless with Aaron, who's the only trained driver of Breathless right now. Say hello, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> what Aaron's going to do for you is he's going to tempt you by starting up Breathless so you can hear the awesome power this boat has. You ready? <laughs> there you have it, Lou. And all the listeners, that's the new Breathless 2 at Bayside Marina, now available for illumination cruises Tuesday through Saturday night. Anything else you want to add, Aaron? Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, listeners. Start calling. For all of you Epcot fans, I have been sent photos and a couple of emails from people, uh, guests and cast members who were telling me that some Epcot retro shirts are now starting to appear over in Mouse Gears. There's two that have been sent to me, uh, at least pictures that I've seen. They're men's only, but um, this this makes you wonder as to whether or not for the, the celebration that is going to be coming on October 1st, if more of these retro shirts are going to appear. They do say Epcot Center. They feature all the old logos. They are very, very cool, so I suggest definitely bringing your credit cards next time you're down. Finally, I want to tell you about some personal news that I'm very, very excited about, because if you are going to be in the Walt Disney World area on Saturday, August 25th, please come by and join me for a book signing and discussion in Walt Disney World. I will be at the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney's west side on Saturday, August 25th from 6 to 8 p.m., This is the first time I've ever done a signing on property, and like I said, I am very, very excited about it. Uh, The store is located in downtown Disney on the west side. It's right across from Wolfgang Puck's and Bongo's Cuban Cafe, right next to Disney Quest. There is no sort of pleasure island or any other sort of admission uh, required. They, of course, will be selling both books there, but by all means, even if you have the book and just want to come by, I would love it if you just came over, said hello. It should be a lot of fun. There's going to be giveaways, things like that. Again, it's going to be August 25th. That's a Saturday night from 6 to 8 p.m. That's at the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney's West Side. Hope to see you there. And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. A couple of interesting items in the Walt Disney World rumor mill this week. First, Disney may be testing the viability and possible popularity of new park hours, as it's been rumored that uh, during one or two nights in December, they will have the Magic Kingdom open until, get this, 2 a.m., 
with extra magic hours until 5 a.m. So if you're like me, or a vampire, this might be right up your alley. This, uh, you know, will present though a number of logistical issues um, and above and beyond whether or not people actually want to ride Splash Mountain at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I never sleep, so I'm personally all, all for this. But if you think about it, if the park closes at 5 a.m., reopens, for example, at 9, that leaves them about four hours to do what normally would take them probably twice as long. So it's going to be interesting to see if this does happen, if they can actually pull this off. Personally, I would so totally do this. Like I said, I never sleep anyway. Uh, if you think about it this way, you can get to the parks in the morning, do a few attractions, uh, have some lunch, maybe go back to your hotel for a nap, dinner, freshen up, whatnot. Go back to the parks at 10 or 11, stay until 5, and uh, head on out to breakfast and, and be on Soren by 9.05. So uh, I like this. Let me know, weigh in, what, tell me what you think. Do you like the idea of sort of this middle of the night, extra magic hours, and would you go? Uh, do you think it, it, it's, it's workable, and would you actually go and do it? A number of you have emailed me this week and said that you have seen pictures floating around the internet of a, uh, the new monitor that's going in and being tested over at Spaceship Earth. According to your reports, it is a single monitor located in between the two existing headrests. Uh, supposedly there is one grainy photo that has been kind of making its way around. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a final production model or just something that they are testing out. So instead of having one monitor on each of the headrests in front of you, there will be one single large monitor in between. Again, it's not really sure at this point what is going to be seen on there. Again, we've, we've heard rumors about a choose-your-own-ending kind of thing or something that may actually put you into the attraction some way. Bama Jen on the forums has posted some interesting photos that beg the question, is the old Imageworks reopening? She said that she walked into the gift shop when she was at the Imagination Pavilion and something seemed different. She looked around a couple times and then she saw that the wall blocking the stairs was gone. She went up to the cast members at the registers, asked if they knew what was going on upstairs. She said that they told her that everything had been gutted, but that they were indeed refurbishing it. And that uh, while they didn't know what the exact plans were, she did say that the upstairs portion of the Imagination Pavilion would once again be opening. Again, we wonder now if this will be in time for the 25th celebration on October 1st. It appears as though more costume updates may be coming throughout the parks. We talked about the changes last week to the uh, Magic Kingdom VIP tour guides, as well as some of the other attractions. Now I'm understanding that the great movie ride costumes are being changed or will be changed in the very near future, and that we should expect some more of these changes to slowly happen elsewhere throughout the parks as well. Finally, be sure you pay close attention to my interview later on in the show with George McGinnis, as he may just be revealing confirmation of another long-standing rumor. I won't tell you where, but again, make sure you pay close attention. And of course, if you have any rumors or news that you want to share or discuss, you can send them to me via email at lou at wdwradio.com, call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW, or head on over to the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. Some of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures aren't always something you can see or touch, hear, or taste. Many are intangible and define what we all know and appreciate as true Disney magic. And one of these hidden treasures was suggested to me by a friend of the show, so I wanted her to come on and talk about it with me. She's one of the very few female Disney podcasters out there. 
She's known to many as the Evil Queen. She is the lovely and talented Jana Smith from the LTAD podcast. Jana, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Hey, Lou, thank you very much. <laughs> How's that for an intro, right? Not bad. <laughs> hey, sounds good. Hey, at least you described me correctly. Exactly. <laughs> I forgot to put lovely, young, and beautiful in there. Uh, that's not really true, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we um, we actually had a chance to meet up for the first time last year back at MouseFest, as well as the rest of the uh, Let's Talk About Disney gang. I, I met uh, Mike and Ray and Cindy, and uh, you guys are you actually you guys are coming up on your your two year anniversary, aren't you? Um, technically, yeah, right, Mike. Yeah, technically, we're we're starting. We have just moved over into beginning our third year. Wow, excellent! Congratulations. Congratulations. We're excited about that. I think that's awesome. But uh, we've kept in touch, you know, since we've met and, and over the last couple of years. We were talking about the Hidden Treasures segment on my show. And you came up with something that I not only agreed with, but I thought was really, really a unique hidden treasure. Why don't you go ahead and tell us w- what your idea of, of a true hidden treasure was? Well, one of the um, hidden treasures that I find, um, not only with my own family, but when we went to Mouse Fest, we, we also saw this hidden treasure just very abundant within our group. And that hidden treasure would be the bonding experience that you have with the people that you uh, go, to, go to Disney World with. I, I agree. And, you know, it's something that, like I said, it's so subjective and it's so intangible and it's very difficult to kind of articulate. But I think that because all of us get it, I say either you get it or you don't, I think we all know exactly what it is that you're referring to. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, if, if you don't experience this, maybe you just, I, I don't know if everybody would experience this. I know we do. And maybe it's because we love Disney so much, but I've had, I have had a few people come back who are just not diehard Disney fans like we are and say, you know, I never really realized how close we got during our trip until we came back and I reflected on it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's so true because we go down there and I actually feel it when I'm there. I can look around at my family and my friends. Like when we were there with Ray and Cindy, I could look at them and think, oh my gosh, I really like these people and we're having such a great time and we have so much in common. And, you know, we just become so close during our trips. So yeah, try sharing a room with them for for the whole time during Mouse Fest and see if you still, still feel that same well, way. Well, <laughs> actually, Lou, we did. <laughs> wow. You guys we do had, like each other. <laughs> we had a two-bedroom villa at Saratoga Springs last year, and we're doing that again this year. So we technically, we're not sharing a bed, of course. <laughs> Family-friendly <laughs> family friendly show here. <laughs> no kidding. But, um, you know, we did, we did share a room, and... I just can't tell you how, how well we get along. And when we go down there with family, it's the same thing. You just seem to love everybody a little bit more than you would otherwise. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I've always said that that kind of the real magic that we talk about is the making of memories with, with your family and friends. And, you know, Disney does have some sort of way of bringing people to, together and helping us kind of form memories that last a lifetime, whether it's with you know, our own family or with people that we meet or, or like you said, events like Mouse Fest. Right. Yep. It's, I don't know. It must come from Walt himself. It still must be the spirit of Walt over the parks and, you know, his, his soul is everywhere. It's all over that place. And that spirit, it, it gets you when you walk through the gates. It just, it jumps onto you. It grabs a hold of you and you just end up having a wonderful time and you end up maybe seeing something in your children that you didn't see before this trip, or maybe it's brings you and your husband close together or makes, you know, a couple of friends, better friends than they were before. You're right. And it's contagious. It's contagious it's because contagious. You, you see, 
you know, smiles on people's faces that, and you become instantly friendly with people that you might not otherwise know. And I know, like for me personally, some of my greatest memories with my parents was the time I spent with them in Walt Disney World. That's what made me keep going back. It's what prompted me to write the book. And now that I go with my own family, I look at it from a completely different angle, but with the same results. And I look at you know my kids when I'm there and my wife when I'm there uh, and friends and extended family, and I, see, and I see exactly what you mean. And that's why I thought this was such a great hidden treasure to cover on the show. Well, you know, you talk about that you're looking at complete strangers and stuff like that. You know, I've done lots of different kind of vacations. I'm a travel agent. I go to lots of different places, and I've never been to any destination where – Everybody, strangers, standing in line. You can make friends standing in line with people you don't know. Um, the Mouse Fest events, if something about that event is even more of a strong of a bond being made with people there, um, you know, like you said, everybody gets it and you just, you click with people and you're smiling. Everybody's smiling. Some people are crying. They're so happy, you know, and, and the very few, I mean, you do see meltdowns in the parks and usually it's with either adults who are just hateful and didn't want to be there in the first place, or it's with small children who are just children, you know, but bonding definitely, definitely happens when you go to this particular destination and it's a wonderful thing. I agree. And you keep talking about Mouse Fest. And when I first went to Mouse Fest and started going to these different events, I never had any idea what to expect. And I went kind of going as an outsider because I didn't know anybody. And I was amazed at the instant community and the instant sense of family that we all got. And not just, you know, other authors and podcasters and webmasters, but just everybody who wanted to be part of it. And it was just kind of this these instant friendships that developed. And to this day, I've, I've remained very, very good friends with some of the people I've met just at the parks. Right. Last year was our first year, so we kind of went in. I, I know we did participate as a community, and we did host meets, but we also went as fans, and we attended other people's meets. I know we did the Stop, Drop, and Roll meet. I think that's the RADP who does that. And, I mean, we when we got on to um, Tower of Terror in, in this car full of people, and, you know, there was maybe a handful of us who were, like, within the LTAC community, but the rest of them were the RADP people who attended that meet. And, I mean, we just made great friends. We, we, we all had the same thing in common. We were all there for a good time. Something about Mouse Fest, when you're surrounded by all these people who have this, you know, I'm going to call it a severe love for Disney, something happens within that group. It's different from going just with your family on a family vacation. When you're with this humongous group of people who all, like you say, get it, you know, right. that it, it's something different. It's something to be experienced for sure. Right. But like you said, even when you do go with your family, there is something you know, again, it's so hard to articulate, but there is something yeah, is. special about being down there. And, exactly. It and, still happens. Right. But, and again, we're yeah. not talking about, you know, when you've been at the parks all day, it's the middle of August, it's 111 degrees outside, 12 o'clock at night, you're with the stroller and the two kids, one sleeping, one crying. Right. We're not, that's not the moment we're talking about. We're no, talking we're about, about that moment. We're talking about the moment when you walk onto Main Street and when you're holding your kid's hand when you're watching the parade and... and spending time with your wife at, you know, doing something special. Or when uh, you see their face light up when they send, see Cindy's castle for the first time or when you're watching the fireworks and, you know, everybody's head just looking straight up in the air, but you're looking around at your faces and just seeing the happiness on their face. Right, right. And, and I think it is maybe, and I think this was, was a hidden treasure because it's not something people maybe stop and think about. You know, we all know that we have a great time, but we don't realize what the, the place does to us as people, what it does to us as family, what it does to us um, as far as, you know, forming friendships and, and keeping friendships going. And, and that's why I think this is a really, really neat uh, hidden treasure and how close we become and how this kind of binds us all together. 
Right, right. It's not something you see. It's something you experience. I, I want, Before I let you go, and of course, thank you for, for what I think is really a great suggestion. We were talking about MouseFest. I assume you guys are definitely be back at MouseFest again this year. We will be there, and you better be ready for us. You've got, got a couple of cool. I've seen a couple of the meets that you guys have planned. So, <laughs> <laughs> One, Well, they're, we're, kinda, we're a little bit wild. We were described <laughs> this weekend by some of our listeners as wild. However, we're very nice wild. <laughs> <laughs> you are very nice people. You, you, I met you guys at PodFest, and... Uh, and we instantly hit it off. But tell people who may not be familiar with the Let's Talk About Disney podcast, tell them a little bit about your show and where they can find it uh, and whatnot. Our podcast is all about the listeners. Um, you can visit us online at www.ltadpodcast.com um, and just, you know, come hang out with us. And literally, our podcast is about hanging out. It's about the friends. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear your trip reports. We want to hear what your favorite movie is and why, what your favorite ride is and why. Um, you know, we want to know about you and your experiences. That our, our podcast is based around the listeners and their experiences. We're not here. We are not experts by no means whatsoever. Lou Mangello is the expert. We're Disney fans, just like you guys are, and we're just trying to share the happiness, <laughs> the <laughs> magic. Just trying to share that with everybody. And um, I'm a travel agent, and I do uh, sell Disney vacations. That's what my agency my agency specializes in is Disney. Um, however, it's not all about the travel agent thing. It's all about you guys' trip reports, what you want to say. Just call in, say what you want to say, and we, we play it. Well, when we first started talking way back when, I, I'm not sure it was either, I was talking to either Mike or, or Ray, and I was like, you know, what I like about your show is I just kind of feel like I'm sitting at your dining room table just listening to you guys talk about Disney. He's like, well, yeah, that, that's pretty much what we're doing. We're sitting at our dining room table talking about Disney. <laughs> that's exactly what we're doing. And we used to actually podcast from the dining room table. Now we've actually moved upstairs. <laughs> but um, it, that's exactly what we're doing. It's like I said, we're not trying to teach you anything. I will share with you on occasion what you might see, what you might do, what you might experience. But um, we want to talk with you and talk to you about your trip and how fun it was for you and let you relive those memories and share. Well, your show's a lot of fun, and like I said, you guys are, are very friendly, and it really comes through on the show. Again, that's LTAD, L-T-A-D, podcast.com. I'm going to put a link up in the show notes this week. If you're going down to MouseFest, make sure you check the schedule for the LTAD um, uh, meets that are going on. Jana, I am looking forward to seeing you guys again this year at MouseFest. Thank you so much for the hidden treasure. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Well, thanks for having me here. Thank you. Today is one of those rare, very special opportunities where I'm fortunate enough to meet and speak with somebody whose work I've enjoyed and admired for so many years at Walt Disney World. His work is legendary and includes helping to create attractions in Walt Disney World, such as Space Mountain, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, the Woodway People Mover, Spaceship Earth, World of Motion, Kilimanjaro Safaris, the Mark IV and Six Monorails, and, and countless, countless others. And he's primarily responsible for imagineering my personal favorite, Horizons. His work has extended beyond the theme parks into Disney feature films, and it continues to be enjoyed by millions of people worldwide. So it's my distinct honor and pleasure and privilege to introduce a man who really needs no introduction. He's former Walt Disney Imagineer, Mr. George McGinnis. Mr. McGinnis, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you. 
I have to uh, not only thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, but I have to admit really what an absolute thrill this is for me personally to be able to talk to somebody who's uh, so inherently instrumental in creating something that's such an important part of my life, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Lou. Mr. McGinnis, you really have one of the longest and most storied and certainly most successful careers at Walt Disney Imagineering. How did you, how did you begin with the company? Well, I was a student at the Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles. In 1966, I was finishing up my senior year, and I did a transportation project that caught the eye or the ear of Walt Disney. Uh, The school acting president was having lunch with Walt and uh, told Walt about my project. And uh, it was a high-speed train in underground between Boston and New York and on to Washington. And it handled the way stations on the northeast corridor with a shuttle that would uh, zoom down a linear motor-powered shuttle and uh, integrate with the train, which had a station car in the middle, and two, four, uh, four semicircular compartments would rotate, taking people on and off with their luggage in eight seconds, and then the shuttle would return to maybe New London, and all the transfer took place in two and a half minutes. So Walt came over to the school with Dick Irvine, the president of WDI, was Wed Enterprises at the time, Roger Brogy, Bob Gurr, who was responsible for the monorails up until the Mark IV. He did the Mark IV. Uh, I'm correcting you on that. Uh, and then uh, John Hench was along. And uh, after Walt ran the train, it was a model that rotated the semicircular compartments. And uh, Walt uh, invited me over to see the people mover that Bob Gurr was designing, and they had a test track at that time. This people mover was for Disneyland. So that's, I started in June 1966, and I worked with, Walt had me do some special projects, and, uh, and he died, unfortunately, in December that year. So I had six months and about six meetings with Walt. And uh, it was really a privilege because he was so excited about everything he he was planning. He, he had a, a a love of design and uh, entertainment.
Well, notwithstanding the list of people that he brought with you being as incredibly impressive as it is, what's it like for you when you're a student and somebody says to you, Walt Disney wants to come over and see what you're working on? I mean, what does that feel like? I I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I had entered my train in the Alcoa project at the school, and, and, and my train came in second. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> an aluminum garden, garden cart came in first place. <laughs> so I told the acting president, uh, I'm going to write to Time Magazine and tell them <laughs> about my train. <laughs> and uh, the, a couple of days later, he told me Walt wanted to see the train. And so he said, Walt said, he told Walt McGinnis will carry it over on his back, <laughs> and Walt Walt said, "No, I will come over." So that's uh, that. That was very nice of Walt to show that interest. Well, fortunately, one of your areas of interest and expertise was in the field of transportation and specifically trains, which we all know Walt had an interest and affinity in as well. And as you were talking about your uh, initial project, you mentioned something that I think for a lot of people instantly kind of raised a red flag, which was sort of like the linear induction um, uh, type technology. Uh, So some of your early work actually revolved around using that. And again, on one of my favorite attractions, the Wedway People Mover. Well, uh, Bob Bob Gerd did all the transportation for Disneyland. Uh, he was there from the beginning. I came 10 years later, 66, a little more. And uh, so I, Walt said we can use another designer, industrial designer at WD, WED. And uh, uh, Bob Gurr told me that, that Walt said that in the car returning to the studio. So uh, I joined, uh, I, actually I w- it started at the school as an automotive designer and, and I switched to uh, product design when I came back to the school in 64 and more diversity in product design. But I did do a transportation project for the very final project. And your your work on the, the People Mover, it wasn't just for the theme parks, correct? I mean, because this originally was meant to be a real working transportation mode in Epcot, the city, not Epcot, the theme park. Yes. Uh, Walt had asked me to do a larger People Mover than the one planned for the Magic Kingdom. So I did that, and it was um, not my final design, but uh, it was. It's now running at the George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston. So WDI did that with the linear induction motor. So Bob Gurr's people mover at Disneyland, the quaint one with the tilting roof, mm-hmm. it was powered by rubber drive wheels in the track against a platen 
on the bottom of the train, four-car train, four or five-car. And uh, that worked well for Disneyland. It would go up and down hills and preview the shows along the way. Uh, and that Walt had a great idea there. And Walt Disney World, because the linear induction motor <clears throat> had a very close gap that had had to maintain, didn't go, didn't make grade changes. It was level all the way around. You may have noticed that. Mm-hmm. How uh, how different was what ended up being in Walt Disney World? How did that differ for, from then what possibly would have gone into Epcot the city had it been built? Well, <clears throat> the large, larger people mover I designed uh, would carry much more people. And that <clears throat> I did an illustration of the people mover for Walt's so-called last film. I... It was the film he did to show to the governor of Florida for promoting Epcot. And he sh- I believe he showed that to the governor in October. And I did illustration for that, did illustrations for that film showing the monorail and the people mover moving through the international area, which became World Showcase eventually. So that illustration uh, is prominent in the film. In fact, they do computer graphics in the film <clears throat> of the, uh, the area changing and being built in the computer. It's in- interesting. I think that's on the DVD, just simply titled Walt. Right. I, I've seen the, the film before, and uh, it, it's amazing. The, the foresight and the, the, the engineering that was going to go into that had it actually been built. Um, and yes. The, uh, Walt was uh, very interested in Victor Gruen, the architect from Vienna, that is responsible for the mauling of America. But Victor Gruen had these garden cities ideas, and they were circular plans. So Walt's original plan owed much to Victor Gruen's concepts. And and we're going to talk later on about some of the things that you did as far as attractions, and specifically attraction vehicles. But your work wasn't just limited to that. You also did a lot of work on other transportation systems, such as trams, but more importantly, I think, the design concepts on the current Walt Disney World Mark VI monorails, uh, as well as you, you also had some work with the Mark IVs with Bob Gurr, correct? Bob Gurr did three monorails, uh, four monorails, Mark One, Mark II, Mark III, and Mark IV. And the Mark IV was done for Walt Disney World. The Mark III ran at Disneyland. Well, Bob left the company and started his own business, and I kind of took over the transportation. But I, I, I spent about half my time on shows 
and half my time on ride vehicles. So the monorail Mark V, I designed it, made 12 trips to Germany following it through production, and then right on to the Mark VI for replacing the Mark IV at Walt Disney World, and I made similar trips to Bombardier in Canada on that production follow-through. So I did Mark V, Mark VI, and I started Mark VII, but then uh, Bombardier uh, reneged on doing such a small order. And I think the Mark VII for Disneyland is in design or maybe in production stage as we speak. But I didn't, I haven't, I didn't do the design. They're going back to a retro design similar to Bob Gurr's original monorails. Wow, interesting. You also were, were very, very instrumental in the plans for Epcot Center. And when it was announced, you actually became the manager of industrial design for the entire park. What, what did that job entail for you? Well, <clears throat> I wouldn't say I was instrumental in Epcot Center's planning. I was, uh, I was doing a lot of um, designs uh, for the Magic Kingdom. But uh, when Epcot started, they knew they needed a lot more designers, like myself. So they had me interview a bunch of students, recent graduates from the same school I went to, the Art Center College of Design. And I recommended seven of them, and they hired them all. (laughs) So I, I told my boss, Marty Sklar, I was less interested in managing and more interested in design. So the managing of all the paperwork, I didn't have to handle it. It was handled by George Windrum in show set design. That relieved me of the uh, timesheets and all that. So I was designing on horizons at that time. So these young fellows came along, and one lady, uh, they came along at the right time for handling a lot of details for the Communicore. I worked on many of the shows in Communicore, and these recent graduates were great at detailing detailing the designs. In fact, we got we got into a little problem there because these students were trained like I was to do models, work between models and orthographic drawings, and to come up with a design. So they produced detailed drawings. Well, the model shop had just changed to dimensional design. They were now designers rather than model builders. So 
when they received drawings from the industrial design department, they complained that they were too detailed. <laughs> they, they were used to sketches, and then they would build the models from sketches. So I got a little complaint from the, we're giving them too much design. <laughs> they, they wanted to go back to the rough sketches, which they would interpret in model form. Hmm. You had mentioned when we were talking about Epcot, um, exactly what I wanted to touch on next, because... Uh, we recently did something as part of a, an Epcot retrospective series on the show about one of my favorite attractions, which is unfortunately now extinct and, and I think missed by many generations of fans, and that's Horizons. And you developed some of the earliest concepts for the pavilion, including the multiple screen Omnimax theater and the ride vehicles, as well as, I think, one of the most memorable parts of the show, the um, ability to choose your own ending. Tell us about some of the things you, you designed for the pavilion. Well... I I started on the pavilion in 79 with Colin Campbell, and we researched uh, uh, a lot and for the Edison Lab concept. Well, when we presented that to Rick, Reginald Jones, the chairman of General Electric, he rejected it. He didn't want history. <laughs> he wanted the future. Well, we went back to the drawing board, and working with the General Electric team and our own show writers, such as Tom Fitzgerald, we came up with a concept of past, present, future. With, with the omnisphere handling the present, well, I'd, I had, Marty Sklar asked me to see if I could fit uh, an Omnimax, uh, IMAX into the pavilion. And I know Claude Coates were working with an uh, IMAX concept. Well, I chose the Omnimax. And I had three screens circling around, and the, the vehicles would travel through the two times through the experience. Then later on, when I had to reduce the size of the pavilion, take, they, Marty asked me to take 10 million out of And usually an engineer is asked to take 10 million. <laughs> but it shows how important the show designer is to the cost. I took... 600 feet of track out of the pavilion and didn't lose any story. The way I did it, my first design for the Omnisphere had three screens, as I said. I reduced it to two screens and went, it, and went in at the bottom and it came out at the top to at the level of the next seen after the atmosphere. So that was the biggest reduction in track. And then I combined two scenes, scrunched them into one scene in one bay, the shortening the pavilion. And uh, that, when you went through one side and you went through the back side, 
you were seeing the next scene. And then I shortened the front of the building, making the pre-show and post-show very small. Now, we'd lost the post-show. I had done a post-show concept with um, Mark Nowandek, but uh, the incoming chairman-to-be, Jack Welsh, shot that down. So we only had a, a Bob McCall painting in the post-show, and we, I put three mirror illusions in the pre-show. So all in all, the building became shorter, front and back, and two scenes combined, and a lot of track taken out of the atmosphere. And I never heard whether we <laughs> reduced it by 10 million. <laughs> uh, that was not important for the show designer, just to accomplish it, but never heard the details of the result. Well, and not only did you did you cut it back in, in size while keeping the integrity of the story, but you were still able to get to the scheduled opening date of October 1st of 83, which is even, even more so impressive. Well, one of the things that uh, uh, the putting the... I had done the atmosphere for an ending, the final ending, but the story team put it in the middle. So Marty asked me to come up with a weenie, as Walt referred to them, uh, for the ending. So uh, I came up, I had, I took something from the post show that I showed to Jack Welsh that uh, move traveling screens. I knew that there was ability for uh, projections to travel from one screen to the next. So I suggested that for the ending. I didn't come up uh, with the idea of choose your future. I came up with the technical uh, concept. I offered an idea which turned into the Choose Your Future. One of the things for me uh, was that Horizon really embodied so much of what Epcot as a whole represented on on so many levels. Uh, It was representative of the themes of Epcot and Future World specifically. And I think it was really the singular attraction that encompassed all of the themes of Future World. But I think more importantly, it carried over the central themes of kind of everything that Disney does from its films to its theme parks and, and every form of entertainment, and that's the concept of family and how the importance of family. Yeah. Yeah, some people said the Horizon show should have been in Spaceship Earth <laughs> because it explains the reason for Epcot so well. So uh, that, that was some, someone's concept. Yeah, and you know we, we talk uh, about the the connections to it to the Carousel of Progress, and again that whole uh, idea of family kind of transitioning to the next generation and the future. And speaking of family, actually, your own kids could be found in the attraction, right? Yeah, my <laughs> my my kids were about five years old, and my daughter was seven. My boys were five. And uh, Tom Fitzgerald suggested they could be in the scenes. 
Uh, so Reed is the boy floating in the when the space shuttle port is coming in. Space shuttle is docking, and Scott is the little boy, the seal licking his face in the <laughs> undersea classroom, and Shauna is sitting over there tapping her foot with the long blonde hair. <laughs> so they they did a good job on the kids. They did a good likeness, and so we we always enjoyed that part of the show. I couldn't imagine being, uh, you know, being <laughs> becoming a permanent fixture in uh, in Epcot and having an audio animatronic. But let's just stay at Epcot for a minute because you created some special effects uh, in Communicor, which you mentioned earlier, over at the Astuter Computer Review. Tell us a little about what you created there. Well, I laid out the show and the the mirror illusions and all that. Uh, I didn't. Um, and Tom Fitzgerald wrote the story. Tom and I worked on several shows, he being the story person, and I being the show designer. But the uh, Scooter Computer Review, as it was called, had its beginnings in Alice in Computerland, a show that RCA was to produce, and John Hinch did the concept. So old concepts never die. So when RCA went out of the computer business and they were to sponsor Space Mountain, which I was working on, Disney offered them offered Space Mountain for them to sponsor. So the Astuter Computer, Allison Computerland died for a while, but it was reincarnated in, in a Studer computer review for the Communicor. And you did, uh, you did some of the effects for that? Did you help design some of the special effects specifically? Yes. I, I, as the major special effect was similar to the Haunted Mansion um, scene where you see the organist and the ghost we used the same effect, and uh, it was very effective for the little dancing person <laughs> on the computers. Uh, but Tom Fitzgerald uh, secured the people for the parts and all. I did the laid out the underneath the guests where they monitors and all the special effects were moving around unseen by the guests. And again, you know, we're talking about some of the extinct attractions that you work on. You also worked on uh, Dream Flight and Take Flight in the Magic Kingdom. I, I, I did the um, storyboard for Dream Flight and uh, that's all I did. I, I was... Uh, and then Larry Gertz followed that through. You, um, you you also worked on one of my favorite extinct attractions, and that's uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where you designed the actual ride vehicles, correct? Yes, that was one I did very early on in my career. I'm very disappointed that they removed that ride and filled in the lagoon. 
because it had as much and maybe more potential for a new show than the subs at Disneyland where they've put the Nemo ride in there. You are not alone they, in your sentiments, I can assure you. <laughs> they, they, they never did a proper show for the 20,000 leaks in Florida. They brought, they brought the show from Disneyland with minor changes, and it didn't relate to 20,000 leaks under the sea, the movie. Can you imagine what they could do with that movie if they had wanted to? Uh, it, they, they brought the, basically the same show from Disneyland, just like they did the uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. They were they they had an all new audience, so in Florida, so they didn't have to do a new show. Mm-hmm. But it, I think they missed uh, Michael Eisner missed the boat on taking out the twenty thousand leaks subs now. Albeit, they don't have a lot of capacity. And right now at Disneyland, you wait in line for a long time. But it's a good show, and uh, 20,000 Leagues could have had a wonderful show based on the movie. That's my feeling. I agree, being a fan of the attraction and a fan of the film, and it's and it's unfortunate because it sounds like, and again, I haven't ridden Disneyland's um, Nemo Voyages yet, but it sounds like it's suffering the same issues that the Walt Disney World version was, which was accessibility, uh, load times, uh, the ability to get guests in and out of the attraction very quickly. The sub rides? Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't a high-capacity ride. And uh, but Walt didn't mind that. He, he he wanted you to be entertained in the queue, and uh, we always tried to make the queues interesting. And uh, people will, as long as people are walking along, they are they are happy. Well, that's a good segue to to talking about um, one of your real greatest triumphs, I think, and one of the things you're most noted for, which is your work on a true classic attraction, and that's Space Mountain. And that must have been such an incredible project to work on for so many different reasons, from the engineering and technical challenges to the concepts themselves. Well, Walt Disney came up with the name. Uh, You have a... He's very... have said, we have a Matterhorn mountain, why can't we have a space mountain? And he assigned John Hench to do that. But it didn't come about for many years after Walt's death. I started on it in 71, and for Disneyland, believe it or not, we had a 200-foot circle of space with between substructures at Disneyland. So I I started on it, and uh, Bill Watkins, Watkins, the engineer I've worked on, worked with on many rides, he was responsible for the track design. 
Of course, I did a small wire model, and I showed it to Dick Irvine, and Dick Irvine, <laughs> it was a two-track model that went into, eventually went into Walt Disney World, and Dick Irvine looked at it, can, and can it be more pyramidal, Dick said, <laughs> and so... Shortly after that, they decided to put F, uh, this Space Mountain in Florida after <laughs> RCA became the sponsor. So the track that was designed for Disneyland, although it wouldn't have fit in very well, was now going to be in Walt Disney World. So uh, in 71... Roger Brogy told me to go over to John Hench's office, and I did, and John put me on Space Mountain, told me to have a pre-show and a post-show along a belt going in and a moving belt going out, and have the load area at the back. And so I laid that out, and Bill Watkins did the track around my show concept. And then when we did, I was right on to Space Mountain for Disneyland after that in 75. And there had been some work done on it. And I was showing the load area outside the mountain. Well, I gave a big challenge to the engineer. I put the load area, load unload in the bottom floor of that 200 foot circle and I entered 30 feet above that so the queue walking along they saw into the ride and the luminescent vehicles zooming around was the pre-show and then they got into the load area 30 feet below the entrance. and But what I did was produce a headache for the track engineer. <laughs> it got so tight at the bottom that in order to get the vehicles back to the load area, they had to dig out from the embankment and surcharge the foundations for Bill's track to make make it back to the unload. So that, I'm sure that boosted the cost of the mountain <laughs> considerably. They were hoping for a $1 million structure. <laughs> and I, I'm, I didn't hear how much it cost, but I'm sure it went over because of that. See, that's why they made you cut back on Horizons, because of all the money you spent on Space Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always a time to uh, reduce costs. <laughs> and uh, they have a Disney... Now, at that time, we didn't have project management. All the people that are concerned with that... Um, Project management came with Epcot, and um, the um, so 
we were, Bill and I, the engineer and the show designer, worked together, and we designed the ride. And uh, the, later on, we had more people to make happy with the <laughs> project designers and the bean counters. <laughs> One of the um... project project management. I didn't mean project. I was the project designer. One of the uh, the elements of Space Mountain that I believe you, you helped work on was the Star Tunnel. And for, I think, a lot of people, including myself, it really is one of the most exciting parts of the ride and really very exhilarating um, in, in what you created there just as the attraction begins. Yeah. I wonder if you mean the revolving tunnel that was to be on both Space Mountains that ended up being at the end for the fiery re-entry and the illusion of turning over didn't work in the four seconds it takes you pass through that so fast there was no illusion of turning over Mm -hmm. but that brings us to this space mountain that was redesigned for disneyland the last it opened in ninety five two thousand five. I did the redesign on the vehicle, bringing the speakers into the seats and making the seats much more comfortable. And uh, that was the last real project I did as a consultant for Disneyland. Now the Space Mountain at Disneyland has the revolving tunnel I designed for the Walt Disney World, and then I designed it for Disneyland, and they didn't put they did versions of it at the ending, but the effect didn't work. But it very works very well at Disneyland now. You feel like you're turning over. I, I've yet to experience it, but from what I hear, the the effect itself is a- incredible. Um, but back back at Walt Disney World, you know, as the park continued to grow and as the property continued to grow, you continued kind of making some of that magic uh, and a lot of new ride vehicles over at the studios as well as over at Animal Kingdom. You worked on the Studio Tram, the Honey I Shrunk the Kids Play Area. Kilimanjaro Safaris, the Wilderness Express, the Steam Train, uh, the Dinosaur, for actually Countdown to Extinction uh, ride vehicle, as well as the Cali River Rafts. Tell us about some of the things you worked on. Some of those things I worked on as a consultant after I retired in 95. I was worked about eight years as a consultant after retiring. <clears throat> But the Star Tunnel, back to that, there's the Strobe Tunnel that I put in Walt Disney World Space Mountain. I wanted, when the Space Mountain was for Disneyland, I wanted to make, after Dick Irvine asked me if it could more cone-shaped or pyramid, I took big Bill Watkins track and tried to make a cone out of it, letting the track go outside the cone. And they they were they were in the design called 
Satelloids by mm-hmm. John Hench. And uh, he was disappointed that they finally went away when the design went to Walt Disney World and we had a 300-foot cone that contained the whole track. But I did the strobe tunnel to get the vehicles to the front of the mountain before they went up the lift. And I called it the strobe tunnel and the blinking lights. Well, Tom Fitzgerald was a cast member at Walt Disney World at the time over at Haunted Mansion. And he put it in a suggestion that they, you add sound in the tunnel. I didn't think of that. So the, the tunnel has an ascending sound. Ascending and it, it, it always is going up. And that was a wonderful addition. Now Tom is, was interested mental to bringing the strobe tunnel to the new Space Mountain redo at Disneyland. It's at the top of the first lift, you go into the strobe tunnel, and then you go into the revolving tunnel up the main lift. So I hope your listeners come to Disneyland to experience <laughs> that. Yeah, again, from what I visit. I hear, it, it's, you know, the, the, the enhancements are just uh, just breathtaking. Um, and I know there's been rumors for for some time that Walt Disney World may be getting some of those same enhancements as well. Yeah, uh, uh, the man that did the special effects for uh, Disneyland, uh, Nayrand is his name, he told me he was working on Walt Disney World Space Mountain. So I hope they get that same effects. Well, I do as well, again, from what I hear. But uh, back in the 80s, if I understand correctly, you were appointed by Marty Sklar as head of the industrial design department. What was it like, and you made you alluded to this before, what was it like going from the kind of hands-on approach to Imagineering and creating to more the role of a director? Well, I'd, I don't know that there's much change. Um, I was directing... As I said, seven uh, designers, but they—they they were. I kept on my job and uh, gave gave them jobs that came in, and uh, so we were all sort of on the same. Um, same level as far as I was concerned. I have to admit that uh, one of the accomplishments on your, your very, very extensive resume, and again, we talked about your other work over at, at the studios and the Animal Kingdom as Walt Disney World began to grow, was actually the creation of one of my favorite characters from my childhood, and that was Vincent, the, the robot from the Black Hole movie. How, how were you kind of recruited to go from working on theme parks to uh, designing a robot for a feature film? Well... I did so many things, from the rocket jets, and that was one of my first designs for Disneyland. Even did the mailbox for Tomorrowland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Peter Ellenshaw was our director on that film, the late Peter Ellenshaw. 
And he was doing a wonderful job, but he was having problems with the robots. So our vice president, R&D, was um, um, the astronaut. Um, see, I'm getting tired, so <laughs> I have a problem. The um, Gordon Cooper... Okay. was vice president of R&D at WDI. And he came over one day, and he was just, our offices were just around the corner from each other. And he said, uh, George, I have Ron Miller in my office. We want to talk about, for, about robots for the black hole. Well, I went over with him and Ron explained he wanted a small, cute robot. Uh, Bob McCall had been working on the film when it was called uh, Space Probe One or something like that. And uh, but Ron wanted to call it the Black Hole and have a cute robot. And I, I kind of argued with Ron. I said. Do you want to compete with the R2-D2? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. But he he said, yes, we, we will do a small robot. So I did the robots, all the robots, and my only screen credit. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a privilege. And the movie, Roger Brogy said the robots were the best thing in it. <laughs> I have to agree. I, I like agree. that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was director level at the end. I I didn't know that. I wouldn't have known it because they never told me. But um, I, um, I forget. The, <laughs> a, a, a support person told me George, you can fly first class <laughs> <laughs> because you're director level. Do you mind not flying with the rest of the team? I said, I have no problem with that. <laughs> and so I was able to use my, uh, we were getting triple points there for the American <laughs> Express. And so I was take, took my family on one of the trips to Munich. We have wonderful memories of that. Uh, the, the, oh. the, uh, the incredibly talented people that you were able to meet and work with at, at Disney is just mind-boggling. As the name, the list, it's just a veritable who's who of Disney history. Like you said, Dick Nunes and Marty Sklar and John Hench and Bob Gurr, Michael Eisner, um, Exitensio, and of course, Walt Disney. What, what was it like, you know, working with and learning from and eventually teaching people whose names are synonymous with, you know, making Disney magic? Well, you learn a lot of things from the people you work with. I think uh, John Hench was always reminding us we were getting an education at Disney that we could get nowhere else. And I think that was true. The, uh, the understanding how important story is to an attraction, um, having the 
success and momentum behind us with the successful attractions already built and learning, especially learning from the uh, animators that Walt brought over to Glendale to design Disneyland. Herb Ryman, um, of course, John Hinch, and Exitensio, and I could name a lot if I had the list <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> I, I had that list of the mahogany row when I first started there. I wondered if I had made a mistake. I, I had left a job with the a city of Los Angeles where I had a beautiful electric drafting table, all <laughs> mo- modern equipment. <laughs> and they threw a four by eight piece of plywood on two <laughs> uh, sawhorses, and I had my drafting table. But I didn't realize how I was blessed I was. There was Mark Davis right beside me, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I wish I, and Chuck Mile, and Vic Green, and Herb Ryman, and uh, others were right in the, the road, and they were just in a cubicle without a door. Uh, Dick Irvine had the only door <laughs> on his cubicle <laughs> where I interviewed with him. <laughs> so I was in a perfect place to learn. And um, I remember Walt Disney coming in to see Mark the last time he visited Webb. And he was in to talk to Mark right beside my board, which was out in the middle of the floor. And uh, the, the Webb's only computer was to the right of me. And uh, Ken Klug and Jim Cashin were working on the monorail track on the computer. So I was right there, and the architectural department was one uh, one area adjacent to it. And one of the persons that was very welcoming to me was Sam McKim. Wow. He was wonderful to bring me up to date on what was what it was like to work at WDI. He, he first informed me I didn't need to wear a necktie <laughs> <laughs> working for the city as a draftsman. I had uh, more formal clothing. Uh, but I came in after finishing the art center I had taken a leave of absence from the city, and uh, as I say, when they plopped down that sawhorse and four by eight piece of plywood, I wondered, did I make the right (laughs) (laughs) decision? (laughs) But it worked out wonderfully. I worked there for five months or six months. And then Dick Irvine sent me over to uh, engineering to work beside Bob Gurr. I worked, my office was next to his. And uh, 
I learned a lot from Bob. Now, 20,000 leak submarine. There's a story there. I was doing all, I liked detail, and submarine had detail on the outside, and I was in the process of adding the detail to the inside, uh, like the Grand Salon, as much as I could. Well, I passed Dick Irvine in the hall one day, and he said, George, are you glossing the goose over there? <laughs> uh, I said, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> something's going to change. And sure enough, Roger took me off the project, put me on another, and Bob Gerd finished the uh, uh, submarine in the field. He went to Tampa, ship, Tampa shipyards to follow through the construction. Mr. McGinnis, just to kind of wrap up, um, what do you think, you know, with all the accomplishments that you've, that you've done, um, you know, with Disney and elsewhere, what do you think your, your greatest accomplishment is while you worked for the company, or what are you most proud of? The Horizons Pavilion. I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> because we had a great team. You know, Horizons opened late, and the best people were retained after the uh, Epcot opened, and they worked on the Horizons project. So we had a great team with uh, General Electric. Their persons were fun to work with, and uh, it was, I, I think I, in coming up with the Omnimax, I gave form, basic form to the pavilion, and George Rester, the architect, gave it his design. I worked out from 79, from the Edison lab concept to when it opened, and we had a wonderful opening day experience in Florida. So that... That encompassed, not only encompassed all the stories of the Epcot, there were so many different uh, areas of design in the pavilion itself, special effects. I really enjoyed the uh, laying out the pavilion and saving Tim <laughs> and all that went into it. It was, it was the best and longest project of my Disney career. Mr. McGinnis, there's so much more that you've done in your career at Disney that I know so many of us recognize and appreciate. And your creativity and your talent and your inspirational work embody the true definition of an Imagineer as your imagination and your engineering created what was the essence of Disney magic. And I think that you faithfully carry on Walt Disney's values and his optimistic views, and you integrated them so well into everything you did uh, throughout all the theme parks worldwide. Uh, you know, Walt was quoted as saying, 
that all he asked of his designers was that his guests leave with a smile on their face. And I can testify as being a guest that you have done, uh, you, you've accomplished and exceeded that goal uh, many times over. And I really want to give you my sincere thanks for taking the time today to, to share your stories with me and my listeners. And I hope to one day have the opportunity to meet you in person uh, sometime in the future. Okay, Lou, thanks much. And if you get to California... I want to take you on the trolleys I've been designing. I would absolutely love that, and I appreciate that offer, and I, I will promise to definitely take you up on that. Thank you, Lou. Thanks, Mr. McGinnis. We have time for just a couple of emails this week, so let's start off with the first. This one comes from John Strickland, who says, Hey, Lou, love the books and show. My wife gave me an iPod for Christmas, and I love listening to the show while I'm on the road. My family, which includes my, myself, my wife, plus two boys, age seven and nine, will be returning to Walt Disney World later on this year for our fourth visit. The other three we've stayed at Wilderness Lodge, and this time we're going for Port Orleans Riverside, likely Alligator Bayou section. We're we're annual pass holders, not alligator pass holders, though we live seven hours away in metro Atlanta. We love Disney. I've read a lot of positive comments about the resort and was just curious to get your take on it. We plan to continue to go to Walt Disney World over the next several years, and we want to stay in different resorts to experience more of the magic. It's nice to save staying in a moderate versus a deluxe as well. What do you think about Riverside, and what's your favorite resort and why? Thanks again, John. John, thank you very much uh, for the email. And I do really, really like the Port Orleans resorts. Um, I like both Riverside as well as French Quarter. I like the locations. The the theming, I think, is excellent, as well as the dining options. Uh, Specifically, Port Orleans Riverside, that was formerly known as Dixie Landings, for some of you that remember it uh, as that from way back when. Uh, The the theming here is great. It's got that kind of feel of an old Louisiana town along the Mississippi. You kind of uh, really feel as though you're immediately immersed into the whole Louisiana bayou type area. Um, there, there's wonderful restaurants. You have Boatwright's Dining Hall, which is very, very well-themed, very good food there. You also have the River Roost Lounge, which is very, very nice, the Riverside Mill Food Court, so there's a lot of different dining options there. There's basically two styles of room here. You mentioned the Alligator Bayou. Those kind of have the feel of a rustic lodge. You should note, though, that they do not have elevators. That's the one thing I always make sure I tell people. And Magnolia Bend really looks like a giant plantation-style mansion. Again, both very, very well-themed, um, far specific buildings. I'd quickly throw out that I like buildings 14 and 15 over at Alligator Bayou and in Magnolia Bend. Uh, I like Oak Manor because it's nearest to, you know, kind of where the, the central location for everything is. Uh, again, you're right on the Sasagula River. You can take the boat down to downtown Disney. Uh, I think, like you said, it's a great bargain because it's a moderate resort, but with theming that kind of rivals even some of the deluxe resorts. There's stuff for your kids as well as you guys who are adults to do as well. Um, I, I've always mentioned the fact that I like French Quarter just a little bit better, probably only because it's a personal preference as far as theming and the fact that it is much, much smaller. Um, uh, Riverside does have about 2,000 rooms in it, uh, and, and French Quarter is much, much smaller. But I think these are definitely two of the best resorts and definitely my top two as far as um, moderate resorts are concerned. 
Next email says, Lou, this email's been a long time coming. First of all, I purchased your two trivia books a little over a year ago. When I received them, I was extremely impressed to see you had inscribed them. Thank you for that. You're quite welcome. A couple of times a week, I surf the net to absorb as much new information and rumors about Walt Disney World as possible. Upon realizing that Disney had a podcast, it immediately became part of my weekly routine. Anyway, during my first listen, my sweetie came up to my computer and did not immediately ask what I was listening to, but just listened and then commented, Oh my God, he's one of you. She didn't realize that there were others like me and then are borderline obsessed with Walt Disney World. Like you, I was raised on Disney, making yearly trips to as a child every June. As a kid, my world revolved around Christmas and Walt Disney World, and as an adult, not a whole lot has changed. My question is also about a request for information. I've visited almost all the on-property hotels, and as strange as it sounds, my favorite is Caribbean Beach. That doesn't sound all that strange. Anyway, I'm looking for as many little-known facts as I can get my hands on. If you could indulge me, I'd sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for being a full-blown geek like me. Keep up the good work and letting me visit Walt Disney World via your podcast. I look forward to it every week. Don't stop. And that's Chris from Middle Island, New York. Chris, thank you very much. Again, we do share a lot of the same sentiments about Walt Disney World. And no, there's nothing uh, wrong about Caribbean Beach being your favorite. I I like a lot of things about that resort. I think, again, the theming here is wonderful. As far as little-known facts, uh, there's really not much I can kind of really throw out there to you. Um, If you want to really seem like a geek to your uh, girlfriend, you could just say that uh, it was once the holder of two distinctions over at Walt Disney World. It was the very first moderately priced resort on property. It was also at one point the largest. It has 2,112 rooms. Uh, It even has its own internal bus system to get you from one side of the property to the other. Um, It it lost that distinction of being the biggest on property in December of 2003 when Pop Century opened. If and when they ever complete both sections of pop it's going to have more than 5700 rooms in 20 buildings so that will clearly make it the largest resort on property uh if you look over to the uh pool it's it's called old port royale it's themed after a spanish fortress if that sounds familiar port royale was the setting for both the movie and the attraction of course pirates of the caribbean Uh, another thing that you might want to people i think miss when they go there you can go over to parrot key island that's the tropical play area for kids there's birds and stuff there another little known kind of hidden treasure that's there um but yeah thank you again for listening and thank you for the email next email says hi mr Mangello. i really enjoyed your shows i don't get used to people calling me mr Mangello, but that's okay anyway they are packed with information i have a question about the not so scary halloween party we're going on october 31st and i'm worried it'll be too packed sell out and not be enjoyable how many people do they let in, and is it worth it? Am I crazy? Love your show. Keep up the great work. And that's from Sharon and family. Sharon, uh, thank you for the email. Uh, and it, I think it's very cool that you go on on October 31st. Yes, it's going to be a little bit more crowded than pro- possibly you know, a Monday, a month earlier. But don't worry about it. You, you are probably going on the busiest night, but so what? Uh, from what I understand, they do cap the attendance at probably around 25,000. And while that may sound like a lot, that's far below what, what a normal, very, very busy day at the Magic Kingdom around Christmas time or middle of the summer or, or big holiday would be. So I wouldn't worry about it. It's a ton of fun. I wouldn't, um, I would just tell you to make sure you plan ahead try and get a guide map if at all possible you can find some old ones online that at least give you an idea of what's going on you need to decide what you want to do and see i would also suggest trying to focus less on seeing attractions if you can uh focus on things more like getting to see the parade some of the other special events um you know the the special uh fireworks and whatnot but again i wouldn't worry and i think you're really really going to enjoy it it's one of my favorite uh special hard ticketed events that disney puts on 
Next email says, Hey Lou, love the show. Listening to a podcast right now. I had a quick question for you. My husband and I visit Walt Disney World during the first few weeks of January. We've seen the dancing lights at MGM, but have not seen the gingerbread house at the Grand Floridian. Do you know when Disney takes down the house? We were amazed at how fast the holiday decorations came down. It almost seemed like an overnight transformation. I've never been to the Grand Floridian before. Would love to see the gingerbread house as well. Thanks for your time, Jill. P.S. I've noticed posts in the forums use a lot of acronyms. Does the list of these most popular acronyms or abbreviations exist anywhere would make a new member like me understand some of the things people are talking about? Thanks again. Jill, I'll take your second part first. Yes, there actually is a post in the forums. I'll put a link up in the show notes that you see if if you visit a lot of Walt Disney World and Disney-related websites, they talk about a lot of uh, different acronyms when they're discussing either resorts or, uh, or, or attraction, things like that. You might see BWV or AP and have no idea what people are talking about. We have a, a pretty extensive, uh, almost complete list, I think, up in the forums. I'll put a link up in the show notes uh, so you can go and take a look at that. But now, as far as your question, as far uh, as the Grand Floridian is concerned, you're talking about the legendary gingerbread house that is put up uh, around the holidays in the lobby of the Grand Floridian Resort and Spa. This, oh, this day, they put this up in mid-November and it really isn't, just an amazing thing to behold and and look at and and smell (laughs) but it it doubles as a real bake shop um they really bake uh classic gingerbread using an old austrian recipe there they have cookies and ornaments and gingerbread houses that you can take or have shipped home there's bread chocolate peppermint lollipop anything you can think of um it's a 16 foot high 17 foot wide gingerbread house they use more than 10,000 pieces of gingerbread and more than 1,000 pounds of honey to make this. There's all kinds of stats that I can put up um, in, in the show notes. It took, takes about 400 hours and uh, to, to actually bake the house, another 160 just to decorate it and put it together. But as far as when it comes down, unfortunately, depending on when you're going, they usually take this down relatively quickly after the New Year's. I mean, we're talking maybe five to seven days, probably max after uh, January 31st this comes down. So if you are going uh, at the end of December or early January, I'd suggest getting there as soon as possible to check it out. Next email comes from Sandy Lorber who says, Hey Lou, I downloaded your podcast weekly and I listen to it on the subway in the morning on my way to work. When I'm listening, I don't even pay attention to the people complaining on the train. I've told a lot of my friends and coworkers that there's also Disney fanatics about your podcast. They too have become fans. Thank you very much. As you seem to be an expert about and have the inside scoop on a lot of things and attractions inside the Disney parks, our question was regarding the Illuminations cruise that you mentioned a few weeks ago. While it sounds great, not everybody travels with a group large enough to rent the whole boat to view the fireworks cruise. I can understand that a couple celebrating a special occasion may want some privacy. Are there any plans on Disney taking reservations on a seat-by-seat basis rather than the whole boat? I called the Disney reservations line and could not get a straight answer. Thanks, and keep up the great work for all that you do for Disney fans. Again, that's from Sandy. Sandy, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking me uh, with you to work with you on the subway every every morning. Now, as far as booking an Illuminations cruise, you can choose to either rent an entire boat or you can actually share with others if you don't want to um, just go as a couple. The price, for example, for a pontoon is about $235 plus tax. That fits about 12 people, say about 10 10 adults. If you want to just book the cruise just for the two of you, that's fine. You tell them that you just want it just for yourself. You pay the full amount uh, and whatnot. Now, if you want to share it with other people uh, but don't really know anybody that's going to be down there, you could do a couple of things. You can actually post. I know people have posted on my forums in the past saying, we're going to be down on such and such a day. We want to do an Illuminations cruise, but we don't want to just foot the whole bill ourselves. And you will invariably find people that will want to share the cost with you. And you might find another couple, another family. I've done that in the past. It's worked out very, very well. 
people are very, very friendly, and of course, there's plenty of room to spread out. Uh, you can call 407-WDW-PLAY between 7 a.m. and 10 o'clock at night, up to 90 days in advance of the cruise. Remember, you do have to provide a credit card to hold the reservation, and if you don't uh, cancel within 24 hours, you will be charged. You can do that, again, like I said, for a pontoon boat. There's all the kinds of cruises you can take from there as well, um, and that, again, leaves from the Yacht and Beach Club Marino. Final email reads, Lou, I have one question for you. Is the Candlelight Processional Program worth seeing if you're not Christian? Everything I've read about or heard about this program leads me to believe that it's a Christian religious program. What if you're Muslim or pagan, etc.? Does this program have anything that would make it worth seeing for someone of a different faith? Thanks, Terry. Terry, thank you for your email, and I can appreciate uh, your question and concern. And although the Candlelight Processional does tell the the, the Christmas story or the Christian version of the Christmas story, I, I really believe that no matter your denomination, because of the performance being so moving and the music being so beautiful and really kind of enveloping the entire spirit of the season, despite whatever one person's religious beliefs are, I think it's a memorable event. Um, I think the celebrity narrators that they have are wonderful. Again, the choirs that they have and the music is absolutely beautiful. No matter your faith, I think it's something that you can enjoy. And if you do go, you can start listening. And if you just don't feel comfortable or if you just don't enjoy it, by all means, if you you know you can sit in the back maybe or on an aisle and you can get up and leave. But I think it's something that uh, that uh, you're really, really going to enjoy uh, no matter what your, your faith or denomination is. So, again, if you guys have any emails that you want to send in, send them to lou at wdwradio.com. Of course, if you have a voicemail, you can call it in at 206-202-4WDW. Thank you for tuning in once again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I, of course, want to thank Jenna Smith from the Let's Talk About Disney podcast. And I cannot say thanks enough to legendary Disney Imagineer George McGinnis for spending time and sharing his stories with us. I also want to thank you for listening, as well as your emails and support. I also want to take a moment to thank all of you who took the time and voted for our show, as well as some of the other podcasts that I mentioned in the recent podcast awards voting. I appreciate that you not only enjoyed the show, but took the time to go out and vote. Winners will be announced on August 15th, so I'll give you the results next week, or you can go to podcastawards.com. Don't forget to also visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for more information, links, and photos to the topics I covered on this show, as well as our merchandise shop and links to previous episodes. If you're planning a Disney vacation and you really want to get that Disney experience even while getting ready to go, please go and visit our friends at The Magic for Less Travel for a free, no-obligation quote. They are authorized Disney vacation planners, graduates of the College of Disney Knowledge, and offer you daily discount checking services, lots of free goodies that you can't get anywhere else, and most importantly, outstanding personal service, which is free to you. Visit the WDWRadio.com website for a link over to the Magic for Less Travel. On upcoming shows, I have more exclusive interviews, our next installment of the Epcot Retrospective series, Next to the Seven Wonders, more Disney scene investigations, plenty of vacation planning information with the help of some more special guests, new segments, more contests, your emails, and so much more. Don't forget also that our marathon challenge with Eric Halser from geomouse.com is still going on, so be sure to listen to last week's show for the details and good luck. Remember, if you're going to be in Walt Disney World on Saturday, August 25th, please come by the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney from 6 to 8 p.m., where I'll be doing a book signing. Please come by and say hello. I'd love to meet you. 
Don't forget that I want the show to continue also to be interactive, so email me at lou at wdwradio.com with your questions, ideas, segment topics, or anything else you'd like to hear on the show. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW, and by all means, please come by our fun and friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. If you like what you hear, please review us in iTunes, dig the show, and of course, please help spread the word. I want to thank you all again for tuning in this week. I really do appreciate you coming back. Have a wonderful week. See ya! Uh, I'm just calling to congratulate you on your last show. Really enjoyed hearing this show again. It's a long time since I've been able to ride that. And the one at Disneyland is just a sorry, sorry contribution, unfortunately. But so it goes. The main reason I wanted to call there was the Keys of the Kingdom tour that you were talking about last time. Had a chance to do that way back in 95, 96 area. Great, great tour. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, best part of the tour for me, though, down in the Utilidors, my wife and I, as we were walking along, rested and was following the uh, cast member who was leading us. And we turned back around, just looking behind us, checking things out. And the Queendom Hearts came walking down the way, and he lifted up his dress to show us off his nice uh, polka-dotted boxers. Kind of funny. Very, very rare that you'd see a cast member do something like that, especially at that time. So we were quite tickled to see him have a little fun with us. Um, anyway, great show once again. Thank you so much for what you do. Hey, Lou, this is Darren Martins, a.k.a. DMART2280 on the forums. Uh, last week you asked for our opinions on the uh, Year of a Million Dreams and its continuation. Well, in my opinion, uh, this really is awesome. Uh, I love the promotion. I think it's a, a great way to kind of make guest visits even more magical. And I feel like the highlight of the Year of a Million Dreams really isn't just getting something, but seeing someone else have that special experience, too, and being happy for them. And I really can't see how anyone would dislike that. So, thanks, Lou, and uh, keep up the good work.